The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome back. This is The Shaken and Stirred Show. I am Nigel Barker, and I am with my great friend and pal, Tom Astor. Hi, Tom. Hi there. How are you? Very, very well. It looks like, once again, you are enjoying a rather nice cocktail somewhere, I see. I am in Oxfordshire and the Cotswolds back in England. As we are on such different time zones, I can legitimately probably all right to be drinking it at this time. Well, I don't know. Five o'clock somewhere with you. Five o'clock somewhere. Five o'clock in New York, which is where I am, of course. I don't even know where our guest today is coming in from, but we'll find out soon. We've got a great guest for you. But as usual, we're both having a cocktail. Tell me, what are you drinking? I'm having a gin and gimlet, which has been around since the 20s. Yeah, not a vodka gimlet, a gin gimlet, which was the original one, which is just gin, two parts gin, one part lime juice, roses lime juice. It was quoted in The Long Goodbye. Um, Raymond Chandler said the only juice to mix a um, gin gimlet with was roses. That's because it's so sweet, though, Tommy. It's not actual lime juice, then. You're using roses. Yeah, one part cordial, two parts gin. And the jury's out on whether it either comes from a drill bit um, called a gimlet because it has a piercing effect on the drinker or <laughs> an admiral gimlet who added lime to sailors' daily rations to ward off scurvy in the 19th century. Ah, I like that. That makes sense. Now, I guess gimlets are generally very sweet, aren't they? That's the thing about a gimlet. It's a sort of a very sweet type of martini kind of drink, right? Yeah, exactly. I went out to my garden area and picked some mint, which I chopped off and put in it as well, which is which adds another further kind of freshness to it. It's delicious, yeah. It's a sort of a, you know, I hate to say it, it's, it's a bit of a softies drink, old boy. Do you, do you remember this is what Coco Roche's favourite drink is? I know. I think hers was a vodka gimlet, wasn't it? Probably was. Well, listen, I am drinking. I mixed myself a rather, it looks like it's curdled, but <laughs> let me tell you what it is. It's meant to be a watermelon margarita, which, by the way, was a lot harder to make than I thought. I've always loved watermelon margaritas. I love margaritas. I like tequila. I know that you're not a huge fan of tequila, but I am. And it's certainly five o'clock in the afternoon. It's about 85 degrees outside, 30 degrees Celsius for all those in Europe. It's a beautiful day. It's a great summer drink. It's a great way to put a bit of color into a margarita. But okay, so margaritas are two and a half to one tequila, and I use, like to use a Platino, uh, a Blanco, a white tequila with a triple sec, and I use Cointreau, fresh lime juice and about half an ounce of lime juice. But then on top of that, I used about a half a cup, three quarters of a cup. Yeah, it really doesn't, it's hard to tell because you've got watermelon, it's chopped up, doesn't really fill the cup, right? But I then blended that. Now, had I frozen it first, it would have made it frozen uh, watermelon margarita, which is probably what I should have done, judging by the way it's curdled. But, you know, I put it over the rocks. But it was very hard. The reason why it was so hard is because the watermelon is so thick and pithy that when you put it through the strainer, because <laughs> that's what you do, you shake it in the ice right, as hard as you can, and then you strain it. But then I also put it through a sieve right, to get all the bits out. And that takes forever because it clogs, oh boy. So this is what I, I've, I've made now. Let me try Cheers, by the way. I'd give it a mix before drinking it. Mm -hmm. No? Actually, I know you're pulling a rather weird face. Tastes fantastic. Tastes. And listen, a lot of the recipes out there tell you not to use a triple sec. They say to forego the triple sec. However, I've tried it without the triple sec. And if you do, in my opinion, it's simply not a margarita. It's tequila with fruit, which is fine. But the triple sec is the quintessential addition 
to tequila, which really makes the margarita, in my opinion. And if you want it sweeter, because this is actually very nice, it's not that sweet, you can always add agave. Cheers. Chin chin. Chin chin. Everyone out there. By the way, we started a rather fun new series on Instagram, on the Shaken and Stirred IG, making cocktails. And I want to know what your favorite cocktail is, everyone out there. And I will attempt to make it like I have this one. And, you know, we've done several really fun ones. The Negroni. I made a margarita. I made a classic martini already. Check it out on Instagram, Shaken and Stirred Show. And let us know what you would like us to make. And I'll have a go. I might even convince Tom in Blighty to have a go. He's incredibly shy when it comes to these things. And you know, we all need to give him a little bit of you know, pat on the back, tell him how great he is and how he doesn't actually look like an Aperol Spritz. The competition's on. The competition is on. So, in booze news. Dun, dun, dun. I've got some rather good booze news, old boy. You know, this is really oh. rather fun. So, are you familiar with an alcohol called the Mai Tai. Mai Tai. No, not the Mai Tai, not the cocktail, the Mai Tai. Right. The Mao Tai. No, I am not. What is it? So, check this out. Neither was I, really. I really, and I've traveled to Asia many times. It is the number one selling alcohol in China. So over a billion people enjoy this. It is nationally owned in China. And why this is booze news is not because neither you or I had heard of it, um, although that is quite surprising because I feel like... No, hang, hang, hang on. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you here. Interestingly, my booze news was about what I thought was pronounced Kwai Chow Mu Tai, right? And when drunk, they drink it in shots as, as part of a, a business deals. And it's, is it, you're about to tell me it's the biggest company in China. Okay, look at us, both on the same booze news. You're 100% right, Tommy boy. It has just become the biggest company publicly listed in China, even bigger than the largest bank in China. (laughs) So, you know, the quarantine has increased alcohol sales the world over. We know that. We've been talking about that on the Shaken and Stirred show forever. (laughs) Lo and behold, Mao Tai, Mai Tai, Wu Tai, whatever kind of Tai you want to call it, the national drink of China, it's nationally owned, as I mentioned, has become the largest company in China. And by all accounts, the stuff tastes dreadful. This particular company that you're talking about was founded in 1999, and Henry Kissinger, back in 74, when he was Secretary of State, apparently told Deng Xiaoping that I think if we drink enough Mao Tai or Mu Tai, we can solve anything. I mean, they must be drinking a lot of it. Well, apparently that's what it is. It's the state drink, right? So whenever foreign dignitaries go, when anyone goes to China, that's what they get given. And I'm not quite sure whether it's to sweeten the deal or completely sour the deal, because by all accounts, no one can remember anything after they've drunk it. And it tastes like rotten cabbage blended with hate thinner and smells like ammonia. It's made from the red sorghum grain. It's, It's simply basically a moonshine of sorts. And there you go. I mean, unbelievable booze news. Um, we have a great guest. He's someone I have worked with and someone who I absolutely admire. In fact, him and I have very, very similar career paths. I'm not going to say his name just yet, but he's a photographer like me. He's a director. He's an artist. He's an author. And we're going to get to his book. He's done so many things. He's actually co-founded an amazing educational platform that you may also find my work on as well, as, as well as Chase's. This is a great guy. I've already given away his name. Chase Jarvis, welcome to the Shaken and Stirred Show. 
Hey, happy to be here. So happy to be here. Tom and Nigel, thank you for having me. And I am armed and dangerous. Ooh, what have we got there? Oh boy, what are you drinking? This is a skinny mezcal margarita. No sugar, just uh, three parts mezcal, one part lime, one part soda. Shaken, of course not stirred, shaken, make it all frothy. I've salted about a third of the rim there. I don't know if you can see that. but I uh, can see that. No, I can't. It's, it's actually kind of a cool thing. I should start doing that. You know, it's one of those things with the salt on a margarita, isn't it, where you like it for the first two sips, but actually after that, it almost ruins the drink. So you can, that way you've got your, your rim and you don't have to taste it. And it, it looks kind of cool too. Yeah, it's got a nice little dip there. But no I triple sec. No triple sec. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm a low sugar drink kind of guy. And triple sec's pretty sweet. So for the, you know, your cocktails, and I really enjoy the, the taste of mezcal. When I make a, a proper margarita, I'll do that. And not that I don't like the taste of tequila over mezcal, but I'm, I'm in a little bit more of a party mood. And this is a little bit more of a sipper. I'm, I'm not going to have like four mezcal margaritas. I usually would just have one of those. That's like my afternoon, kick it off into a nice evening drink. So that's my drink of choice today to be with you fine gentlemen. Fantastic. Chase, where are you right now? I am at our home in Seattle. We have a, another a house that's been in the family for 100 years, 95 years, that is uh, up in the islands off the coast that you may have heard of called the San Juans. Whatever, I'm just going to pile in the car here as soon as we're done broadcasting, hop in the car, and I'll be there in uh, 90 minutes. And it feels, it's only 90 minutes away, but it feels like a lifetime <laughs> part. It's up in the woods on, on the water, little rocky beach, just a sh shaggy cabin with like wood paneling and you know it's been in the family for a long time but that's where i do a lot of good thinking and i've spent a lot of time up there during the pandemic so i'm headed there shortly Con in england at the moment i mean everyone as soon as they started easing our lockdown everyone piled off the beaches and yeah. all you could see was just an imminent like resurgence of this virus you know with everybody sort of lit packed in like sardines and travel's so complicated now to get off this outside of the line and that really you know that little cabin up there on the water sounds oh, extremely refreshing. It is. I'm so blessed. And we got the we have the deed on the wall. My great aunt's mother paid ten dollars for it. Wow. Ten. <laughs> My goodness, so, that's crazy. So I got a little not dissimilar to you, Mr. Barker, a little remodel going on up there. And it's been fun to have something creative and something to do with my hands other than work and sit in front of the laptop and and to take pictures uh, over the course of the last whatever four months during the pandemic so um so what yeah, are you remodeling been, exactly basically the house is built in the 1940s a couple of different additions we're trying to it's a sort of mid-century feel it's got wood paneling little shag carpet old funky cabinets so we're trying to preserve all of the history that goes into you know a funky little eclectic mid-century place normally you don't want to save the history of a shag carpet that's all <laughs> well we are we are replacing it with some nice berber but a lot of the things like the wood paneling for example uh the shape of the the place all the old cabinets as i mentioned we're preserving those and so building around it and replacing a lot of the systems like the electrical and the plumbing and so i've been Spent a little time on YouTube, hitting up some of my contractor friends, and it's been a fantastic project to keep me busy and to do something besides just sit in front of Zoom calls all day during during the pandemic. So it's knock on wood. I feel lucky, A, to have a second place, and then B, to have a project. Chase, are you doing it yourself? Yes. I, saw, I mean, I have had some friends, for example, my cousin is an electrician. 
he's doing the things that are especially dangerous or risky and sort of teaching me along the way. You know, I spent some summers uh, swinging a hammer and doing a little bit of that stuff uh, between you know, high school and college and early college era. So I know just enough to be dangerous, uh, but not to, to do it, you know, start to finish on my own. So I've had some helpers along the way, people that are smarter than me and, and teaching me, but uh, it's been a great project. I think it's not just great, but you know, the reality is, is that most of us, when it comes to doing these sorts of projects, and when we, you know, broadcast them online on social media, are normally exaggerating our talents and what have you. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I certainly coming clean right here, but. I do have contractors who do most of my work. I mean, yeah. there are, you know, I do little bits here and there. Yeah. I, occasionally, I, I, I agree. It looks like I probably did most of it. I always be very careful in how I describe <laughs> what's happening so that people don't realize that it's not actually me who's doing it all. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, no, I don't. But I, I, it's one of the things about you, Chase, and one of the things I love about you and have, having followed you for some time now, and obviously, it's the name of your business, Creative Live, that you created this incredible educational platform. But you love to get deep into whatever the project yeah. you're in. And you sure. seem to be, a, I say, a jack of all trade. Now, oftentimes, that goes with master of none. But I feel that you are the master of, of many. Um, <laughs> what is it about you that, that drives you? And I know you've had this question probably a million times, but you are so driven. You do so many things. You're your finger in so many pots. What drives you? Oh, well, thank you for saying all those nice things. And Tom, I don't know if you scripted this with Nigel before. So I know him quite well. What it's just basically an outpouring of inadequacy. <laughs> feeling incredibly inadequate at my <laughs> having this. I'm very competitive with Chase, by the way. I'm basically copying Chase, everything he does in his career. Like, you know, he went wanted to go to medical school. I wanted to go to medical school. Chase dropped out. I dropped out. You know, he wanted to work on television and create content. So did I. You know, he's only one year older than me. He's like literally one year older than me, Chase. So I'm chasing. <laughs> <laughs> so earlier on, when we were having a discussion with Nigel before we did this, and it was the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 you know, since, since we've heard about the work on the log cabin, I'm afraid there's no coming back from that. He's a complete. <laughs> Shit stirrer, this guy. <laughs> can, I, can I mute Asta at this point? <laughs> yeah, which is, if Nigel's the shaken, then uh, Tom is the stirred. He's yeah, the shit yeah. stirrer. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. As oh. you will now be known, Tom Asta, <laughs> the shit stirrer. <laughs> Thank you, Chase, for that. No, no. Um, long together. But you haven't answered my question. It's true. It's true. I haven't. All right. Where does it come from? I mean, look, you, you, as I mentioned, you do all sorts of things. You've, you've just written yeah. a book, Creative Calling. You know, there's, and it's not your first book. You've done several books. Yes, I, I grabbed it off the shelf. Okay, so to answer your question, I think what drives me is curiosity and possibility. So if you put those two things together, when I was a young kid, very, I grew up, I was an only child, and in my house, that did def definitely did not mean that I was spoiled I'm middle, lower middle class economically. So it was a lot of like, okay, well, you know, here's a block of wood, go play in the backyard. And I think that is in part where my curiosity came from, but my parents were very supportive of it and encouraging me to experiment. So tried lots of sports as a kid, enjoyed every, you know, everyone didn't really choose something until a little bit later, spent a lot of time drawing, painting, building, just experimenting as a young person. And over time, it, you know, I, I needed to start uh, choosing some things. 
but I was always wildly curious every time I turned my back on something to focus on something else. It sort of, you know, I, I maintained a curiosity. And the trouble, and I wrote about this a lot in the book, and many people may identify, is over time we're told by our parents who mean well, or, or our, our career counselor, or our grandparents, or mentors, or peers, or friends, that we need to be something. And we need to usually be, it's one of like about six or eight things in order to be perceived as successful. So I followed that path, you know, again, coming from a middle lower middle class family, that's my first person in my uh, household to go to and graduate college. So I felt some sort of, I guess, social pressure to excel or to be deemed, quote, successful. And after pursuing ultimately what was everybody else's suggestions from my one precious life, I realized that, wait a minute, here I am. I'm $100,000 in student debt. So I got a degree in philosophy, but I've already dropped out of medical school. I bailed on a career in professional soccer. All of these things that I had quit or got into debt with were things that other people wanted. And that's when I decided... Did you um, like the way he just dropped the bit about professional soccer, by the way? <laughs> professional, not just <laughs> professional soccer. Guy's an athlete. Okay, just adding uh, another thing. Carry on, sorry, carry on. No, no, no. Um, and yet, you know, I did all those things and felt very unfulfilled. And we're, you know, we're told to never quit in, in a lot of cultures. And yet that's what I started to do. And I started to quit some of the things that other people wanted and experiment around the things that I wanted. And more than anything, I actually had a passion for photography that I had dabbled with just a little bit. And my, my grandfather died and the silver lining to his really abrupt passing, he died of a heart attack with zero notice. You know, we were, we were quite close, but I was given his cameras. And so my curiosity for what was possible to make a living and a life doing what you love instead of what everybody else wanted. The timeliness of my grandfather's passing and giving me his camera when I was my early 20s and a little bit of a sense of, of curiosity and adventure, which had me pack my bags and uh, live out of a backpack in Europe for uh, six or seven months with my then girlfriend, now wife. I ended up getting excited about photography as you know, we've talked over dinner a couple of times, Nigel, I pursued that relentlessly and you start to tap into something that you're you, what I think of as a calling or that you're meant to do or that you're that brings you joy and fulfillment and it came easy to me or the the areas that were rough or hard I still had a ton of energy for them and fast forward say 10 years and I could say that I had mastered photography I'm one of the top commercial photographers in the world and when you master Anything. So wait a second. Yeah. No, no, let's sure. go back one second right yeah. there. Sure. Because you, you swallowed that last word. Didn't you say you just became one of the top commercial photographers in the world? I did. So just letting you know, Tom, he's also humble like I am. I'm just Ooh. throwing that out there right now. See, we're very, very similar, Chase and I. You know, I would never, ever, ever call myself one of the top photographers in the world. Would I, Tom? Not since breakfast. <laughs> I think you would like to. And right now, the feelings and advocacy must be heart-wrenching. <laughs> To have heard Chase say those things and, and <laughs> not and not give you a comeback, which is like you, Nigel, because that was no, I, I'm literally <laughs> waiting. I'm waiting for Chase to mention the part of his career when he got the opportunity to interview me. I'm just waiting for that to come because clearly that was a game changer and probably that, why he wrote the book. But we're getting, to, the we're getting there, aren't we? So but, carry on, Chase. That's a, that was that's the pinnacle. That's this is all. This is a buildup, but you know there was so much joy involved and in, in, for me connection energy, vitality, uh, and a lot of, you know, willingness to endure hard things. And 
willingness to be wrong and willingness to put yourself in uncomfortable situations when you're doing something that brings you joy. And those are, you know, those things, those careers or pursuits or jobs, those are not often presented to us by the people we love as real possibilities. So by overcoming, you know, all of culture's shoulds and woulds and and actually tapping into that. Chase, were you expecting your folks to suggest that you become a photographer? Probably not, right? No, no. But I don't think, I think it's so rare. Right. But that wasn't an option though, right? I mean, you're 49. You're going to be 49 in July. I'm 48. So you and I are very similar in age. I remember when I was a kid, there was no, no one was ever saying you should be a photographer. Photography was a a rich man's hobby. I mean, yes, there were professional photographers, but I didn't know any really. So in a way, you know, that conventional approach that you received, I mean, I was, you know, obviously pushed into doing, trying to do medicine as well because of biology, chemistry, physics, and math was what I was good at. So what do you do? You become a doctor or what else are we going to do? And become an accountant. I don't know, but we already had an accountant, a lawyer and a banker in the family. And so you should become a doctor, you know? So are you suggesting that then that, you know, that you have to find your own way, regardless, you have to look for that creativity in yourself? I am. And that's, that's one of the hardest things, Uh, you know, you, you think you just suggested it, whether on purpose or unintentionally, that you already had all these other things in the family. And the family was suggesting very thoughtfully and meaning well, you know, oh, here's your options. And as I said, there's like usually five to 10 things that they'll give you to choose from. And the funny thing is, is the people who are giving you this advice, while they love you very much, and this is the part that's confusing, they love you dearly, but they probably don't even know about the jobs and the things that are possible today because those things didn't exist when they were a child or they're not part of their lexicon or their culture or their awareness. And to me, that's part of what is so exciting about you know going way back to the beginning of your question, what drives me? You know, I ended up putting you know 15 or 20 years of my life into mastering photography. And it was when I managed to sort of, and if, you, if you're wondering if you've mastered something, then the answer is no, because you either, you'll know it. If you know the material, front, back, left, right, and you don't know everything there is to know. That's the day you stop, right? That's the day you stop. For me, it was the day I realized that I, my dreams, I, I've checked the boxes that I want, and this is what it feels, the, the most interesting piece to this, in my mind, is once you've mastered something, the ability to lift and stamp just a little bit of what you learned and combine it, if you know how you learn sort of new and interesting passions and pursuits, that allows you to learn and master other things more easily and readily. And you see this with a lot of people. I'll just I, my, my number one example, he's a dear friend of mine, is Tim Ferriss. You know, he was a New York Times bestselling writer. Before that, he was a dance champion. Before that, he was a martial arts champion. Before And since, since then, he's you know one of the top podcasts in the world. He's written seven, I think, number one New York Times. But So this mastery sort of begets mastery. And if you are curious by nature, look, I'm not, I'm not setting out to start a, a business remodeling cabins. Like that's not my future. But my desire to get into it, to know how to learn in my specific way and the curiosity to do just enough to be dangerous. That's my favorite thing about this time. But is is the mastery important? Is the mastery aspect important? Because I only say that because, you know, I absolutely, I understand what you're saying. Like I mentioned, I I come from a very similar background to you Mm and ended up finding myself into photography, but you know, and I certainly give masterclasses. I've done them on creative life. Yeah, of course. 
right? However, you know, I always laugh when people say, say, oh, can you do a masterclass in this? Or can you give me your advice in that? Internally, I laugh. I mean, sometimes I laugh out loud, but, you know, in large part, because I don't really feel like a master and, and that I'm always learning, right? So that I'm right. constantly evolving. I'm constantly learning. And if I look at my own career, you know, I, I've, I've written a book, I've done various things. I've, you know, whether it's, I've made movies, I've been in movies, I've done television shows, I've executive produced my own shows. But every time, I can't say I ticked the box of being a master at it, even though the shows might have done very well and it might have been top successes. Even my book was a New York Times bestseller, but I, I didn't have the control over that. I, I feel like I could do a better book or I could do a better film and next time, next time. And people say, when, what's your best photograph you've ever taken? And I say, the one I'm going to shoot tomorrow. Because I just don't feel I'm there yet. Is that my own? Definitely room for improvement, Nigel. <laughs> Definitely room for improvement. Clearly. Certainly, certainly with the books on the photography. It's just amazing. Tom is like, do you know, isn't it, you know the show The Muppets? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. You, know, Enough they, said. You, know, you don't need to go into any more detail. <laughs> no, the guys in the, in, in the, in the balcony there, Waldorf yeah. and Statler, Tom's no, just sitting no, up there like... <laughs> that's so weird. It's Waldorf and Astoria, isn't it? Which is my family. <laughs> Ironically, you should say that. That really there is kind of weird. Tom's great-grandfather is Waldorf Astor who is wow. the Waldorf and the Astoria that you just mentioned. So absolutely 100%, he is... You're spot on. My instincts. I guess I want to comment on your, I want, I want to comment on your comment. And then I'm going to say one other thing about instincts because the, the word just popped up and I think it's important. So to your point, Nigel, about the characteristic, I would argue that you've mastered photography. And I would also argue that you've mastered, say, being a model. Because once you've had a, you know, 25,000 pictures and you've stood in front of, you know, hundreds of photographers and you can make your face, your body, your mood, your emotion, do a certain set of things. And, you know, maybe it's very uncommon to master modeling, but I'm using it as an example. And I want to say the same. I believe you've mastered photography. That is when the creative gap is zero. The distance between what you can see in your mind and what you can actually make is zero. The creative gap is zero. That, and you can do that consistently. I would say that's mastery. And ironically, I think the, the point that you just put forward is interesting because the desire to always learn, to always improve, and to know the vector on which you're most likely able to improve or to, or to learn, that is the mindset of a master. And so when you've achieved mastery, because in, in, let's just use for photography, you, you knew what it felt like to trust your instincts. You knew where the areas that were soft and that you had to push against and understand. And you knew where you had to seek some mentorship from someone who was further along than you were. And that is knowing the material. And look, I don't, I think mastery is, it really is, people say, you know, 10,000 hours. I think it's more like 20,000, but whether we're not going to go down the uh, equation, the math equation on what equals mastery, the question is, if you don't think you are, you're probably not. You might be my exception here, Nigel, because I think you've mastered photography. My nickname by Tom has become Ming the Merciless. And now that you have um, keep mentioning <laughs> mastery, the word is resonating with me and I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to feel one must master the universe and um, you know, master cocktail meeting. But it doesn't mean that you... See, what you've just taught me is that to become a master is not necessarily the top. <laughs> For sure. It's it is a not. step. And I yes. guess in my mind, when I hear the word master, I feel that, that that's it. Like you've done it. You've, you've kind of, you've mastered it. You know how to do it. But actually mastered is not 
necessarily, you, once you master something, you then take it and then you make it your own. It's almost sure. like master driving. Okay, I know how to drive. Now I'm going to become a Formula One and I'm going to learn all the techniques and I'm going to take it to another level. That's yes. actually a much, in my head now, is much clearer. Is that what you really mean? So there's mastery and then there's taking it to the next level. It is. And also present in mastery is your own personal style. And this is true whether you're an electrician, a dancer, a surgeon, or a Formula One driver. Like different Formula One drivers have different styles. Like you can see where they're aggressive in the corners or in the straightaways, or they're, you know, they're downshifting, or there's there's a thousand again axes under which you can be different and, and express your own thing. And that is an important part. That's why I like the concept of mastery. Now, I do not think that mastery is required to be successful at lots of things. Because you can learn, you know, the 80-20 the rule, right? Pareto's principle. You can learn a subset of something and have a lot of success. You don't need to or get Or you all- can hire people who are masters. <laughs> for sure. And, and simply pay them, right? And for sure, back. for sure. Right, Tom, is that, what, is that what you do? Yes, but finding the right people is the mastery. Mm. Ah, there you go. But see, that is, a, that is mastery. And, and, you know, I would say interpersonal communication is an area where, you know, knowing what I know about Tom from the show and previous shows is your ability to connect with others, your emotional intelligence. These are areas where you, I mean, I'm I'm guessing you're probably a master at several things, but this is clearly one. I mean, he's, you know, his jokes are well-timed, his steps into the conversation and adds his poignant piece of humor. This yeah. is you know, what, you know what he's doing right now, Tommy. You, don't you know exactly what he's doing? Is he's building you up, building you up, yeah. and he's gonna, and I'm <laughs> gonna knock the pedestal from underneath you, <laughs> and it's gonna collapse like a muppet on the ground. Or we might never speak to each other ever again. It might be divide and rule. I mean, we might, you know, two separate podcasts. There's the shaken podcast going forward, and then there's the stirred podcast, and they never the, the two shall meet. <laughs> exactly, it'll be shaken, not stirred. Will be the next season. <laughs> Well, I just, I think that curiosity is a really important thing. And, you know, to go way back to the beginning, that's always something that's driven me. And when I was fortunate enough to to discover how much I love photography and to do it every day for 20 years at a, ultimately at a very high level, it just gave me sort of confidence and, and curiosity about other things that I've been, you know, that's why I wrote the book. I felt like I wanted to package as much as I could about my own creative journey and how that you know, creativity is available to everyone into a book. I called it Creative Calling and not dissimilar to yours. It was, a, you know, a bestseller on lots of the different lists. And I don't think that I have mastered writing because there's still a gap between the book that I put out and what I think is possible. But I felt like I did a pretty good job and I want to do a couple more because I am hungry to explore, make mistakes, connect with others. And I've been studying the writing and the process of so many other writers that to me that's a new area of a passion i talk about the you know rebuilding the cabin that's more a hobby like i do not desire to be a master craftsman i don't want to you know make my own wooden boat or anything like that i want to just be proficient there but i have been making i've been building my rock wall around my property as well during the quarantine and i would say i actually could probably retire being a rock wall builder if it weren't for the fact that i just am pretty crap at it (laughs) really difficult have not mastered it in any shape or form they must have built men in a completely different shape back in the day hundreds of years ago when they built these rock walls because i'm six foot four 225 pounds and i can can hardly move these rocks i mean it's like a (laughs) four-man operation. I'm like, what the hell were they doing back then? They didn't have machinery. 
Well, as Tom said, teamwork, right? Uh, the, the Inca, um, which are master stone workers, um, you know, they worked in huge teams to move gigantic rocks and to set them perfectly. You know, there's a an artistry, not just a utility to rock wall, but there's an artistry when you really step back and look at it. And the same is true. This is why I think everything is so cool. Same is true for anything, right? There's like to watch someone who is a master at anything is just pure beauty, whether again, it's golf or surgery or teaching or, you know, any activity. And I also believe that- I'm not sure that I'd want to watch my surgeon. I'm just saying, you know, quite frankly, I I think if I'd rather be just asleep when the surgeon is working (laughs) on me, because that just sounds terrifying. But anyway, fair fair enough. Um, But they do often take videos so you can watch after. Now you're really weird if you enjoy watching (laughs) that. Everyone out there, don't. Okay, just don't do it. Those are the most disgusting videos and film. Just don't do it. Well, I, I, I do think that that, that, the curiosity, the belief that um, pursuing something that brings you joy, that it uncorks so many things about yourself, about the world for you, and the most interesting of which is it uncorks future possibilities. And so I advocate that you really pursue something with you know deep commitment for a long period of time, whether you achieve mastery or not, or whatever your definition is. Okay, shocker, right. everyone out there. Would, would you believe that um, he went for a degree in philosophy? I'm just, you know, he's a <laughs> photographer, but it, only just listening to you, I mean, literally, I, I, would, I would have pegged you as a philosopher before anything else, right? I mean, it, it's such a large part of you. Is that why you did the degree? Is, or, you know, you, you, don't really, you don't really use it, but it's a big part of you. It was a deferral of my passion around creativity. Because I was afraid of telling the world that I wanted to be an artist. Because the idea of an artist in the circles that I was raised in and, you know, whatever, 30, 20, 20 years ago were, you know, it's popsicle sticks and pipe cleaners and glitter and, you know, painting on an easel. And it just, you know, the world that I grew up in didn't take There you go, Tom. You're an artist after all. Well, it's funny what you were saying about this, you know, your parents and things meaning well and, and, you know, giving you all these options. In my experience, I was always told to pick one thing and do it really, really well. And then rehab. And then my father would turn around at the end and then say, but remember, as soon as you think you're doing it just as best, there's always going to be someone there who can do it better, which, um, well, actually, I disagree with, actually, frankly, with a lot of things. No, for sure. I, there's no one better at rehab than you, Tom. That's 100%. I agree. Oh, oh. There's no one better at being Tom Astor. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think the other, the other point that I wanted to, to make was this one about intuition. And it's a thing that is, I, I admit, it's squishy. And there's a, a big passion for science because science is, you know, a language of truth in our time. But there's something very, very powerful about trusting your gut. And you, I can't say that your gut is right 100% of the time, but it's right way more than we give our, ourselves credit for. And every time you listen to that little part of yourself that says go right or instead of go left or to find a different friend or to not believe what that person said about your work or your character, and you, you learn a little lesson. And that lesson is to trust yourself. And when you follow your intuition and it pays off and you follow your intuition and it pays off, to me, this is where the best things in life, they all end up being 
sort of in some way manifesting inside of us. And yet we're taught to look to the external world for validation, for support, for so many things, not the least of which is what we should do for, you know, with this one precious life that we have on our planet. And I think that the answers are, are within us, that if we can learn to trust ourselves and ask ourselves, you know, what do we really want in the world? What do we believe is possible for this one precious life? That is where I have come across the most, not just the happiest, but the most fulfilled people. There's this piece of intuition and learning to trust yourself that is also not taught in pop culture. And look, I'm, there's no puppet master. I'm not throwing rocks at anything out there in the world. Your parents aren't trying to be mean and your career counselor is not a horrible person. And But that's the cool thing about this. To me, it's a, it's they a reliance. They weren't taught it either. They weren't. They weren't. Right, I, right. You know, and, in all fairness, I mean, one of the things that we all learn as we grow up is that our parents are, are flawed, mm-hmm. right? And that they are no different than everyone else, right? Yeah, that we love sure. them and they're our parents, but they're just people. And yeah. you know, some, somehow at some point in your life, one, you know, you, as you're growing up, you think that they are almost like godlike, that yeah. they, 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 they know everything, that they, because they're telling you what to do, they're telling you how to do it, you know, you learn everything from them. So everything must be right until you realize that actually it's quite often wrong. And yeah. you either then kind of rebel and almost go through a period where you might even hate your parents. I mean, heaven forbid, but I, I think a lot of teenagers have done that. And in large part, it's because you're struggling with the realization that they're not gods and that mm-hmm. they're just real people and they don't have all the answers, even though they've pretended to have all the answers all this time. But what else were they supposed to do? You know, exactly. there's a guidebook on how to be a parent, quite right. frankly. Right. And I watch you, I watch you parent, honestly, from uh, this, your stories and what I know about you personally, that that's not that you don't share on the internet. And I think that your ability to talk about that is is interesting. I'd, I'd love to spend more time hearing about that and, and talking about it, maybe, you know, outside the show, or if you want to. That would be Chase Jarvis live, people. Yeah. Chase we, we did has it. his own podcast. He has his own shows. <laughs> it's everything. By the way, it's all called Chase Jarvis something or another. <laughs> He's very good at branding. You know, I should have called this Nigel Barker show, but, you know, Tom had a problem with that. I just decided to call it Shaken instead. But <laughs> Chase Jarvis. It's very easy to find him. It's Chase Jarvis this, Chase Jarvis that. Nice, nice. Chase is a cool name. Nigel, as we know, the name Nigel was not registered once last year in the United Kingdom as a baby name. Not once. I mean, you you might be one of the last Nigels. Maybe that should be your future podcast. The Times called me, the Times newspaper called me and asked me if I wanted to do an article on the fact that nobody was called Nigel last year in England and the first time in the history. And, you know, as it was a dying name and I was a (laughs) well-known Nigel, that I want to talk about it. I told them to go F off. (laughs) The last Nigel. I love it. Chase, your next podcast should be, um, you know, you should stick the term enlightenment in there somewhere because you were describing earlier about, you know, your intuition and, and... making the most of your precious life and some of the happiest people you've ever met are people who really understand the value of making use of the time and grasping possibilities as you said curiosity and possibilities which Vedanta would have referred to as the route to enlightenment I mean and it can be taught it can be taught in our culture as you said it's not taught and and actually everyone's in such a down rush to catch up with everyone else while you're running while you're on the spot you know it's, it's a rare thing that you describe I think in these days you know i I wanted to do i don't want to do things intentionally and and with good reason and i want to understand what my why is and that frankly speaking was the reason i wrote the book creative calling because i didn't think that there was a good manual and 
I couched all of that adventure, the way you just described, rather than enlightenment. I couched it all in creativity because I, I believe that A, everyone's creative, B, that creativity is a muscle, and that C, it's only through using that muscle over and over and acknowledging on a, on a small, lightweight, regular daily basis that you come to understand that we all have the ability to create the life of our dreams. It's just creativity at a different scale. So most of the books that I'd read about creativity were about how to do morning pages and about oh, just how to get a real job and to, you know, just they were so sort of um, either really, really heady or trite. So I figured there was a lane that, that I could swim through around creativity, which is about creating. That was almost just, the name of our show, actually, heady and trite. <laughs> Which one was which? Well, you, you can only guess, right? <laughs> that might well be the name of our next our next show. Like Cannon and Ball, Heady and Trite. I like it. You know, to your point about enlightenment, Tom. Enlightenment can describe so many things, and I know I don't ever want to represent being enlightened. I'm, I'm happy to say I've mastered uh, the craft of photography, but maybe mastering enlightenment is... <laughs> Is, is too far. But for someone who is at peace with everything in their world and who, you know, whatever the definition of enlightenment is, I believe that we can chart that path and get as close to that thing, whatever it is for us. The goal is to be intentional about it. And so many people, I think, look to someone on the internet or someone who's achieved, is further along in the train of success than they are, or, or has mastered something or achieved something. Again, whether this is a celebrity or, you know, just someone in your town that you respect, admire, and appreciate, a lot of people, when they look at that person, I believe they think that that just happened. And if you deconstruct any individual person's success or fulfillment in the process of success, what you find is intention and a shit ton of work. And the intention part, people know that it takes work to get good at something. But I think that that people wanted to be a fill in the blank, or they ran at something. And over time, that thing changed a little bit, but they were always going in a direction that predominantly that that served their the vision for this life. I think a lot of people don't don't think about that as intention. They think about Richard Branson just happened to, you know, start an airline. No, no, he was an entrepreneur. He'd already started a number of businesses since he was like 12. He wanted to drop out of school. I think he did when he was 14. He actually like, went to them at the same school as, uh, not the same school as Tom and I, but the school I went to before that called Skatecliff. And mm -hmm. he came back and spoke while he was there. No, just what an amazing guy uh, Richard Branson is, you know, from starting his record company out of a phone booth in London and running out every time the phone rang and, and, and actually answering the phone in the phone booth because that's yeah. the number he'd given anybody, everybody. And, you know, just extraordinary in order to start his business. But yeah. just, just for going back to something you just said, sure. Sure. Talking about obviously enlightenment and sort of being happy, if you like, with oneself or being feeling you're at one with yourself. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that mastering things necessarily means that you're happy or enlightened, right? Like you can, True. you're constantly trying to master something or feel that you're the best at something. And oftentimes people then go to the next thing, go to the next thing, go to the next thing. When if you look at some people, like if you were if to argue that a monk or a sort of Buddha, if you like, mm. is, is found enlightenment. You know, it's almost the sort of stopping the chasing, stopping the mastery of, of whatever it might be and trying to look very deep inside oneself and be comfortable with whoever you are 
at that point, at any point, and being yeah. happy with who you are and not feeling that you have to be better, that you've got to improve, that you've got to change. Not to say that you won't or that you're not going to sort of do your best to be do, do better the next time around at whatever it is, but sort of being at one with yourself, being comfortable, settled, you know, is almost that moment of enlightenment. You know, and I, it seems to me that, that sometimes those things go against one another. We're, we're taught yeah. to succeed. We're taught to be alpha. We're taught to be competitive. Sometimes it's in jest, but the reality is we're all trying to strive and make a better world for the next generation. It's a part of our own immortality. What are we leaving to the next generation? But we don't pay attention to who we are, right? It's not like it's a part true. of what we are. It's true. And to me, that is my own karmic journey. Why I like mastery is because in, in mastering anything, you start to get a picture of what ma even mastering being present is a lifelong job. If I told you, if you could tell me what was the first foot you put down on when you woke up in the bed or did, was the first thing you remembered when you woke up this morning, was that an inhale or an exhale? Like if, I, if that level of presence is truly being in the moment. So in that way, I file that sort of level of presence and mindfulness, which I do, you know, align deeply with enlightenment. But in, in but a, can anybody in a, do that, Chase? Can anybody? Yes, yeah, there, there are there are monks that I think uh, that, well, yeah, they, that, is, that that are sleeping so lightly that they wake up and remember which breath they took. The the ability to be present is that's what I'm in part chasing now. I think this is why I like just mastering something that you love. It gives you fulfillment and joy and maybe perhaps a good living or a great hobby, a great connection to yourself, the ability to trust yourself, all these are skills. And at some point you realize that sort of the chasing of things, you know, to me, this is not for everyone, but what I have come to understand for myself is that the constant becoming, that's actually a little bit of a uh, unhealthiness in not being content right now. And look, all we ever have is now, is just now. And so what are you choosing to do? What are your thoughts in that moment? Are your thoughts controlling you? Are you the boss of your own thoughts? Like that's, to me, a very interesting proposition for joy. Because if you're projecting into the future what something's going to be like, or you're living in the past of a mistake that you made, and it's very, very hard to be uh, connected and to feel fulfilled and to feel present, which is what it means to be human and you know, that, that is not saying you don't want to feel, you don't want to feel happy or sad or joyful or frustrated, or those are all natural. How far along do you feel like you're in the process, Chase? <sighs> I'm such a neophyte. I've been meditating for about seven years. My wife is a meditation and mindfulness teacher. Mm -hmm. So I was open to a lot of this stuff from the work that she's been doing under some of the you know, the greats, Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock and a lot of folks who, um, Ram Dass, uh, people who are, who've truly like lived, <laughs> lived a pretty amazing life with the goal of presence, you know, that as the end goal, when you start to not need things and, you know, anything outside of you in order to be happy, uh, I, I think that's a something that I, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to try. I'm not even close. And I don't know. I don't know that many who have succeeded at it, but I'm trying to set up this journey, this like life arc. It's, it's been said that the first half of our life is about acquiring. 
I, t- I write about this in Creative Calling. The first half of our life is about acquiring, acquiring skills and knowledge. Drink, drink, Tom. It's a drinking game we're playing because every time Chase says the name of his book, we're going to have a drink. <laughs> Creative Calling. He's brilliant, by the way. Brilliant right. at marketing. You're going to get to know that about Chase as we mm. go through. Carry on. Carry on. That, uh, f- I lost it. Where was <laughs> I going? <laughs> oh, I love it. There we I'm go. Totally thrown him Next question. <laughs> You know, it's very funny when you say that when you when you say that you know the thing is about being in the present, being in the now, and then you know not dwelling in the past. Every time I walk down a street in Manhattan, Nigel has the distinct disadvantage of having been a very public face of that show he was on, which I'm not even going to mention because it's it's over. But anyway, he gets reminded on every street corner by somebody that that their granny loves him, and it was their granny's favorite show, America's Next Top Model. There we go. So. And he gets reminded and pulled back into the past, whether he likes it or not. So I mean, it doesn't matter how hard Nice tries, you know, just to live in the <laughs> present. He's constantly reminded of, of his past. And I've got to say, he does enjoy it somewhat. Yeah, yeah I, I used to love it more when it was not their granny that liked the show, that it was <laughs> when they liked the show. Um, but thanks, Tom, yeah, for giving, you know, putting it all into perspective. I do think that that the ability to be present, that's all we ultimately have at the end of our life. And, you know, if you ask, the number one regret of people who are dying, it's that they didn't pursue their life, that they pursued the scripts and the paths and the patterns of, the, of other people, what other people suggested. That's the number one thing that people who on their deathbed report. Ah, what an extraordinary, sad thought. Yeah. And I can honestly say hand on heart, but I don't regret anything I've ever done. And I think that's a spectacular place to find yourself. and. Mm. I'm trying to advocate that more people, I, I think if you polled the normal adult, that they probably wouldn't say that. They'd say they compromised in, in ways that, that they felt like they betrayed themselves in small ways. We're not talking, this is not about like deciding to do something or not do something. I think just there's just a pattern. And this leads to discontent and this discontent is I think what disconnects us as humans and as social animals. And that's part of why I advocate looking inside and find out like, what are you, tr- what would, what truly lights you up? I don't care if it's being a, a, a clown or what do you say to people who are struggling every day? I mean, I hear you and I, and you know, absolutely right here, right now, where we have sure. a little bit more time on our hands and we were in quarantine or whatever we're doing, where, you know, and it's, we have time to stop and smell the roses, so to speak, a little bit more than we used to, we usually do. But even now, you know, if you've got two, three children, or you're dealing with homeschooling, and you're trying to make money, or you've lost your job, and you're on some sort of PPP, whatever it might be for all those people out there, they're sort of thinking, that's all well and good, but I don't have a moment to stop and think. I don't have time to to meditate. I'd love to work out. Maybe I have five minutes. Forget about remembering my first breath in the morning. How does this become real for people? What is that? What's actionable? I think that's a great question. And you know, you should prepare to take a drink because I'm going to mention my book again. In Creative Calling, I basically have a, a framework that I'm hoping people can employ. And the framework is basically a four-step process that is a creative process that you can apply to any individual product or thing you're making or a photo shoot or a business you're building or like literally anything. Or, and this is the answer to your question, to your life. Because again, what we like to, I like to put you in charge of this one precious life and everything that you just said, like the fact that you're busy, you have kids, you're, you're behind on bills or all of these things are true for most people. And yet 
the reality is the people that you admire most for whatever reason you admire them are people who have managed to carve this out for themselves. The success didn't just happen. And you could say it was because they met the right person or sure, all of those things could be true, but the chances of them just happening into it are virtually zero. If you deconstruct the most successful people in any category of pursuit, you find out there's this huge element of intention. So if you can't carve five minutes out for yourself to set a vision, to understand what your why is every day, five minutes, whether that means getting up five minutes earlier or staying up five minutes later, then to me that this is the number one alarm bell for people walking, walking around right now, listening to this podcast in the air to driving or commuting or on a jog. Like you need to be able you owe it to yourself for this one precious life to be able to set enough time aside for yourself that you can craft this four-step process idea. Imagine what you want for yourself, design a plan to get there, start to execute that plan, and then amplify what it is that you want to be or do or become across your relationships with others, another word for community. So that's the little four-step acronym. But important to notice that if you cannot put your own, this is, you know, for anyone who's been on a flight, and if you can remember way back to March when the last person, last of us probably flew, put your own mask on before assisting other passengers. And you need to, we need to, as if you were a functioning Except adult. Except COVID times, in which case you must go in wearing your mask. But sorry, carry on. <laughs> well said. Well said. Ultimately, this has to be true. Like you have to be able to make enough time for yourself. And if you cannot create 10 minutes for yourself every morning or evening, then you are telling yourself a set of stories and you have officially capitulated your will. And I'm encouraging you to take it back because 10 minutes is doable for any person. It's also quite funny that you went from five minutes to 10 minutes, by the way, you doubled the time. I feel like I'm being taken for a ride here. <laughs> no, it's almost for your benefit. It should take five minutes, but for you, you have to sit down and try and spend five minutes trying to remember what you're supposed to do for the next five minutes. It's quite difficult meditating, apparently. Like, you, really, you have to practice, apparently. Here, Tom, it takes you just 30 seconds. Why they call it practice, by the way, too. Meditation practice. Practice. Because I, I find it very hard to sort of perhaps set aside time we all have our own ways, right? So one of the things I do is sort of get up very early in the morning. You know, I'm a very early riser and I love that time because no one else is awake. No one calls me. I can kind of do what I want, right? So you have that sort of free time. For me personally, and, and, I'm, not, and I'm not saying that what, I agree with everything you're saying actually, but one of the things that I find works for me is to find sort of peace within and during the chaos. So literally when I'm on a photo shoot and there's Sometimes there can be 30, 40 people on a set. There can be lots mm -hmm. and lots of people oh, asking yeah. questions, doing all the things, rushing around, you know, people working on the catering, people with, working on my lighting and equipment, clients that are fussing models, hair, makeup, styling. There's a lot. There can be a lot happening at once, right? Yeah. And that's just, that's what oh, I understand. Well. Everyone understands their own world. You can, you're a chef, you work in a kitchen, you've got all the people prepping and cooking and the, the noise and the kettles and the people putting their orders in. We all have a situation where it sounds like you, you can't concentrate. But it's within those moments I, I have personally found that I can actually almost have a sort of form of waking meditation where I, I look at everything and I sort of smile to myself. I look at it all and look around and I'm like, this is my world and I'm having a moment. 
but I'm within the chaos. It's like nothing yeah. stopped. People are still screaming. The children are doing their thing. I did it last night when I went down and someone was screaming at someone in the kitchen. The dog was barking at a UPS guy who had arrived. And various things were going on. And I sort of stopped and I looked at everything around. I went, this is my family. This is my life. This is my little pod, you know? And yeah. I sort of had a moment for myself. You know, it wasn't five minutes, 10 minutes. Sometimes it's just 10, 20 seconds. But those moments where you stop and in a way, smell the roses within the chaos, within yeah. the noise. It yeah. just, you know, and you realize, appreciate what you have at that moment. That's so true. But within all that clutter, if you're worried that I can't take 10 minutes when I'm by myself and I, I, I don't live in that situation. And trust me, I've, I've gone to houses in Spanish Harlem, for example, where there were two families living in one tiny little apartment that was sort of 700 square feet. And one family took it at night for the night shift and another family took it in the day for the day shift. And they were rotating through this house. I understand people don't all have the luxuries that we True. have. I mean, so to assume that these things and, you know, you've, I've been to Haiti, I've done documentaries there where, you know, people are living in tent cities and they don't have anything that we have, right? So yeah. it's, it's not to say that everyone can do everything. And that being said, I've seen amazing miracles come out of those tent cities, right? right. But right. it's within the chaos, within the clutter to find peace, right? Take, take what you can get. And at the first, you know, at first it might just be a moment. Part of, I think, your story, I'm going to uncork this just a little bit and play you my lens on your life. I'm outside you, clearly. So I think that that your ability to do that has been strengthened and fostered because you were able to pursue some dreams that you had in, in life and create success for yourself around things that you cared about, which helped you understand what it was like to not just make a photograph, but make a family. And you take what you can get. And if right now you're listening to this and all you can get is one of those little moments that Nigel just talked about, great. But in that moment, when you do find that profound feeling, the simplicity, the moment, just that little joy, what I'm asking you to do is to replicate that and make it 50% bigger. And that's when you start carving out some time, whether it's four in the morning or midnight, whatever your personal schedule is, or whether you have some luxuries when you have lunch hour at the job that you're doing in order to pay for your kid's education or whatever, that you can dream, you can go through this creative process of, of imagining because nothing happens without a plan. There's a great Picasso quote, I don't, it's too long for me to recite, but it's essentially that things that happen, happen with a plan. And of course, there's all kinds of serendipity in the world. But if, you're, if you have a vision for this one precious life or this project, or even the day, that is directionally important. And if you just articulated, Nigel, that you get just 10 sips of quiet air in the middle of the chaos, fantastic. Your job in life now is to create twice that for yourself because we all need time and space to be able to think and dream. And the same is true for, you know, I also have spent time in Africa and waste time and money and awareness around, you know, the billion people in the world that don't have access every day to clean drinking water, for example. Whatever position, and I, I recognize, and I think it's important for us to recognize that if you are listening to this podcast, or if you're on this podcast, like myself and I, you're Tom, we are coming from immense privilege. And yet, we all as humans ought to want this for one another, the ability to carve out a little time and space to dream about what it is we want to be or become. And the best thing you can do for that first is 
to put your own oxygen mask on, you know, start to shape this one precious life that you have. And through that, maybe you can shape the lives of others, or you can find enlightenment to use Tom's point or, you know, creative bliss or tap into your creative calling. This is a thing that is, I think, widely misunderstood. And that's part of what I'm asking people to do. Unbelievable. There you go, people. Chase Jarvis, photographer, director, artist, entrepreneur. entrepreneur. There you go. <laughs> Preacher. Soccer player. Philosopher. <laughs> probably a lawyer. <laughs> Quite frankly, jack of all trade, clearly master of all. Um, <laughs> unbelievable to have you on Shaken and Stirred. How the uh, tables have turned from when you interviewed me. Yes, I remember it fondly. And, uh, you know, put me on the spot on a few things. And you know, I remember how fascinated you were when I, I sort of argued with someone at your office about how to make a cup of tea because they tried to boil the water in the microwave with the bag in it. Uh, I went through this whole process on how to actually make tea. You were so fascinated with it, you decided to film the entire thing and turn it I into did. a little mini show, um, which, you know, <laughs> probably was my most successful ever um, TV oh, come on, the making of a cup of tea. Look, before we go, of course, we have something on Shaken and Stirred called Last Orders. It's a sort of quick, rapid-fire kind of question kind of type of thing. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. Very, very simple. So first question, pets or people? People. Don't get me wrong. Like, I am an animal, and I do not discriminate. Dogs, cats, birds, I'm a, like, we have a no-kill zone. And, I, like, if I see a spider, I catch that spider, and I let it go outside. A fly, a worm, a snail, anything. I don't kill stuff. I occasionally do an accident. All but. right. Also, pets don't buy books. <laughs> Brilliant marketing. Once again, don't believe him for a moment. He much prefers pets. Total BS, people. <laughs> What's the best compliment you've ever received? And I'm kind. You are kind. If you had to pick an actor to be you in the movie of your life, who would it be? Bradley Cooper. Are you kidding me? It's like obvious, isn't it? Mini me. <laughs> I get Dwayne the Rock Johnson all the time. You can see why, clearly. I mean, you know. Okay, 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 okay. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oof. I love the nature of the question. I don't, I'm flummoxed. Um, Nigel, Nigel Barker. The brilliant question. You know, a brilliant answer, rather. A brilliant question, of course, as well. Um, and finally, shaken or stirred? Shaken. Ah, look at him. Chase Jarvis, people. <laughs> The unbelievable. Got to check out his book, Creative Calling. Everyone have a drink, please, out there. You're all probably hammered at this point because, you know, I'm not sure I've ever mentioned anything as much as I have Creative Calling. Um, but you've got to get it. Great guest, great friend. Also check out Creative Live, his incredible online educational platform. He has so many great courses on there. You know, things for everybody, but certainly within the photography and the creative worlds, there is so many amazing classes. Check him out on every level. Basically, just... Google Chase Jarvis and whatever you want to know about, whether it's books, podcasts, you've got it all. In fact, we're going to be the new host of the Shaken and Stirred show after this particular episode. So on that note, everyone, we'll see you next week. This was Shaken and Stirred. <laughs>